ERU comes from our generous listeners. You make community radio possible. Thank you. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fifth program in our series this election year to be broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is titled Press or Propaganda? Corporate Media, a Free Press, and the Future of Democracy. We'll discuss the essential role of the free press in a democracy and the extent to which that role is being fulfilled in the 21st century. We'll be taking your calls during the second half hour of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guest this morning. Joining us by telephone is Michael Franz. Michael is Associate Professor and Chair of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College in Brunswick. He is also Co-Director of the Wesleyan Media Project. Michael is not quite on the phone yet, but we'll be saying hi to him in just a moment. Um, Joining us in the studio, where we have a live presence, is John Christie. John is the Co-Founder and Senior Editor of the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. He was a media executive with over 40 years' experience. He founded the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting after he retired in 2009, following nine years as the president and publisher of Central Maine Newspapers, which publishes two daily papers, the Kennebec Journal and the Morning Sentinel. Welcome, John. Good to be here. Thank you. Leslie Moonves, Vez Moonves, chairman of CBS, got a lot of attention a few months ago for his remarks on the nature of Donald Trump's campaign when he said, quote, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, close quote. We wonder, is there a tension between corporate profit-motivated ownership of mainstream media and the public interest mission served by journalism in an open democracy? What roles are old and new media playing in forming an educated electorate in the 21st century America? I think Mike is now on the phone, so let's say hello, Mike. Hi, how are you? Glad to have you with us, Mike. Thank you. My pleasure. So since you like just got here, let me put the first question to you. What is the role of the free press, in, uh, and why is it essential to democracy? Well, the press is absolutely essential to the well-functioning of a democratic system, and its primary goal, I think, not only in forming the electorate uh, and citizens of what government is up to, but also uh, investigating and holding the feet, uh, holding uh, citizen, uh, elected officials' feet to the fire in terms of uh, making sure that uh, leaders are transparent, that they are doing the will of the people, and that there isn't any uh, corruption. And the press needs to have access to elected officials and needs to be able to investigate the um, uh, the way laws are made and the way behave, the elected officials behave. And citizens are uh, 
expected to be able to uh, to see those things in action and and evaluate the behavior of the people that they elect. And so the press is absolutely critical to that. I mean, this goes all the way back to the Bill of Rights, John. And some of us of a certain generation grew up with Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite and we have this idealized vision of the public interest role of the press. Was that ever the reality, and is it true now? Well, you know, with the First Amendment, with not the sixth or the ninth or the tenth, that must mean something. And the press is the only uh, business protected by the Constitution. Even schools aren't part of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. So I think that tells you a lot about what the intent was. Oh, you know, we've always been a mess in the media. We've always said good. We've always said bad. Uh, you've had great people of responsibility like Edward R. Murrow or Walter Cronkite. And, and actually, on the broadcast side, it's, it's rarer than the print side. And the print people don't, we don't get the publicity, the fame of the people who put their faces on TV and, and the radio, the voices. But I can name a hundred reporters who've done if not hundreds of reporters who've done great jobs, they're unsung heroes. They they go to the city council meeting night after night and tell you what's happening. So we've all in all we've done a good job, but there's certainly um, uh, another big change happening. A big change happened in the '70s when the professionalization of journalism occurred. It went from the guy with the the bottle of whiskey in his in his bottom drawer, who never let the fast get in the way of a good story which was one of the things I heard when I first started, to people who went to college and got educated and, uh, and, and developed a higher level of ethics. So for the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into this century, I, uh, for quite a while, we were doing very well. I think it was the golden age of journalism, uh, but things have certainly changed in the last 10 or 12 years. Was it always a business, Mike? I mean, John mentions that it was a business, and we hear a lot about corporate ownership of media and media consolidation by big corporations, but was it always a business? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by uh, a business. It's always been um, an important uh, economic uh, part of our sort of political system. Uh, if you go all the way back to the colonial times and into early, the early republic, the press was a primarily a partisan uh, branch of our political system. I mean, most of the print papers were uh, directly advocating for one or the other of the parties. And it was absolutely critical for the, those parties to connect to voters through those uh, through those outlets. Um, as the industrial era developed, uh, it became a bit more of a, of a sort of a, a business model in terms of making money and became about selling sensational stories to uh, to voters and uh, and there were very famous personalities who owned uh, a lot of media and were um, very well known across the country and through the part of the 20th century it developed into a more uh, objective uh, there was objective norms that developed about how the press should function and how it should uh, contribute to the public interest and that you know is exactly what John is talking about in terms of the development of the golden age of media where uh, where we had sort of you know it, it was a business in the sense that um, uh, people owned media outlets but uh, but there was certain norms of behavior that have gradually eroded over time and the, con the consolidation of media has developed uh, over time so if one 
one reads the history of media in American politics, it's, it's a fascinating development that uh, takes many different turns, both in terms of the political dimension and the economic. I want to spend a good bit of the program on the sensational stories, so I'm not going to let that remark go, but I want to just spend one more minute on the history. Uh, John, can you talk a little bit about the Fairness Doctrine, what it was, why it was, and why it's gone? Well, the Fairness Doctrine only applied to broadcast journalism because the public owns the air rights, and it didn't apply to newspapers or any print publications because we don't use any sort of public means of, of distribution. Uh, and because it was limited at the time, um, there was a sense that there, um, there had to be some ability then to make sure everybody got their say since there were limited channels for getting their say. And I, I don't know all the history of it, but I believe with, with the proliferation of cable television and there being so many other means of distribution and access to media, it was no longer seen as necessary. Do you want to add anything to that, Mike? Well, just the only other thing was was the the the, the challenge of actually knowing um, what uh, programming was uh, was in the public's interest or met the public uh, interest or was a, a balanced approach to uh, to the coverage of of, of issues. Um, for instance, if you wanted to insist that as a as a condition of getting a broadcast license, you had to cover some sort of uh, important public affairs or um, educational programming. For for example, it's hard to know what counts. I mean, obviously the news counts, but um, other types of, uh, of stories or other types of, of programming, um, it's hard to know what's uh, considered coverage of both sides or the different sides of an issue, and that was a challenge, and so uh, it was abandoned in the 1980s as the media changed, and as uh, some argued that it was hard to kind of operationalize the concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, Maine is lucky right now to have some great family-owned and nonprofit um, news companies, um, would you say there's a fundamental tension between the public interest mission of media corporations and shareholder interests? Like if shareholder interests and profit dominate the public interest motivation, does generating real news in the public interest require a level of sort of altruistic motivation? I'm willing to give up some profit in order to serve the public interest. What would you, what would you say, John? I would say let's not let's not romanticize family ownership, please. Okay. Uh, well, I mentioned Pulitzer and Hertz to begin with, who were founders of Yellow Journalism, and I worked in corporate journalism for a very, very long time. Dow Jones and Company and Tribune Company, both Fortune 500 companies, and you know it was good we made a profit. I'll tell you one example. Um, we wrote a very uh, scathing piece about uh, I said the paper Tribune paper in South Florida, scathing piece about. Uh, Delta airline accident from a Fort Lauderdale to Texas flight, I think it was Dallas, and uh, how they weren't really doing things properly, and that was the cause of the accident. And Delta canceled all their uh, advertising with us. Because we were profitable, because we were a successful company, we could just thumb our nose at that and keep going and write our stories. So having a newspaper make a profit is an excellent idea. It's a necessary thing. Uh, I, I worked both. I worked for a family newspaper in the North Shore in the '70s. It did a very good job. They had very high standards. They protected me to the nth degree in a First Amendment case that I had. Then I was bought. We were bought by Dow Jones, and they did a better job because they did have the standards. They did realize that good journalism and making money went together. But a lot of things happened in corporate journalism in the late 1990s and the um, early part of this century, involving acquisitions, debt. Um, I think, hubris, 
And all of those really damaged corporate journalism. Until then, a lot of corporate journalism was very good. Yeah. I mean, I hear you talking about debt, and it brings to mind Sam Zell on the trials of the Chicago Tribune. That's the Tribune company where I worked. Right. And now um, they have recently announced a new mission, which features very clearly in their tagline, the monetization of content which is, you know, not necessarily generating content, but making money off content. What do you make of that, Mike? Well, I'm still trying to make sense of it, actually. I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of jargon in the way they discussed the, uh, the transition to this new model. And so, uh, you know, it's probably a ton cheaper to uh, curate content and repackage content and allow uh, the distribution of that um, uh, news to fit to users' interests and previous search patterns and so forth. And, um, and, and, and in some sense, that may serve uh, voters and citizens well, but I'm trying to figure exactly out how this is going to work. You know, what, are they, uh, uh, how is this media model going to play out? What's, what's going to happen? And, uh, and I'm, still, I'm still trying to make sense of it, actually. Well, and then how do we place the comment that I quoted at the top of the show from Leslie Moonves and the remarkable phenomenon of the media and the Trump campaign into that context. Um, you know, the sensationalism that has surrounded his campaign and the remarkable amount of airplay that it's gotten. Right. Um, how does that fit? Go ahead, Mike, you go. Well, I mean, the, the only thing I'll say about, uh, you know, the, about that is an interjecting with uh, a fundamental piece of this story here involving um, profit and corporations and so forth is the role of citizen citizen interests or what you know consumers of media want to see uh, as a as a driver of what media covers. So journalists, of course, want to be. Uh, want to serve the public interest and want to do that well, but and citizens want to be informed, but they also want to be in many ways entertained. They want to they want interesting stories. They want um, uh, uh, sexy headlines, and this is what drives you know our interests. It's probably part of, of human nature in a sense. And so, as we demand those things, uh, media in many ways tries to balance its role as providing that, meeting that demand, and also serving the public interest. And, and Trump is this interesting case where we are just drawn, citizens, and overwhelmingly just drawn to these stories, and he is a major media figure, and so the media covers him, uh, as they should, as the nominee and as a major candidate, but they they cover everything he says, all of his statements. We eat that up, and he, he feeds on that, and his poll numbers uh, reflect that in a, in a sense. So he's a, an incredibly uh, unique candidate who's been able to capitalize on all of the sort of media politics as they exist, and, and in a sense ride that to the kind of success that he's had. And so it's a very interesting, uh, whether he can continue that into the fall is the open question, but everything he says uh, is covered, and we eat it up, and it feeds on itself, it becomes this uh, fascinating loop. Thanks, Mike. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is press or propaganda, corporate media, a free press, and the future of democracy. Our guests this morning are Michael Franz, whom you just heard, associate professor at Bowdoin College and co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project. And also with us is John Christie, co-founder and senior editor for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. John, comment for us on that push-pull that Michael yeah. was just talking about. I mean, the, are we feeding the beast? There's, or? There's, a, there's a corollary that I think is, and, I, and everything he said about, I can't add to what he said about Trump and TV because he got it perfectly right. 
television has always had, at least as far as I know, the ability to know how people respond to what it reports. So they have ratings. We knew about ratings. It's all about ratings. So they put this on television. Everybody watches it. Put more of it on, more will watch it. Newspapers, until the digital era, never knew that. You'd put a headline on a, on, on a story, and then a week later I could talk to my circulation director, and I'd say, Tim, that was a pretty big story. How many more papers did we sell? Well, I think we sold 50 more papers, John, but it rained that day, so I can't be sure. I said, ah, let's just do what we should do. Let's write the stories we should write as journalists and in the public interest and as we think our readers need. Well, when the digital era came along, we were able to do just what television could do. We put a story story on the, on, on the web, and we saw, oh, that got a lot of hits. Let's put another one on. I joke that if we had, if, if the newspapers in Maine had a story that said, Paul LePage at a sandwich yesterday, they would get a lot of hits. We know, in fact, that the reporters at the Statehouse who work for newspapers have been told to put Paul LePage in the stories or in the headlines, whether there's news or not, because Paul LePage gets clicks. So now the print media, which is kind of, uh, it's my prejudice, I'm sure, I always felt was a standard media. We set, we set the table, broadcast responded. We're now in the same place they are. The old line from uh, w, Channel 7 and TV in, in Boston invented it, if it bleeds, it leads. So now we're in the same position, the newspapers, because of their websites, are now being driven by clicks, by responses, rather by the journalistic instinct. And that is, that's the big problem right now. So where does that leave citizens? I mean, citizens who are interested in politics and government, who are searching out the information that they need to make good votes and good decisions are obviously getting it. But the citizens who are not so motivated, where does that leave them, Mike? Well, I think it's that, that that's the key developmental challenge here as media changes and as, um, uh, you know, as, as we try to encounter this. Uh, an interested citizen, and that's really what's important here, someone who's interested in politics and has some knowledge of the political system can find a tremendous amount of information online, uh, on television, uh, in print, that will enrich and um, further that information and interest and knowledge and make them better citizens, and they will do the work of sifting through it uh, as, they, uh, as they need to. But the less interested citizen, the less knowledgeable citizen, the person who who's trying to become interested in politics but doesn't know a lot about it is sort of adrift. And what's so fascinating about the old uh, the old media prior to the sort of uh, development of cable and um, um, the proliferation of online sources was that um, people would get, you know, people read the newspaper, people watched television. There were only a couple channels, and there was a local paper that was strong and vigorous. And you would read the paper uh, as, a, as a regular citizen, and you would become uh, educated about local affairs or national affairs. And uh, everyone had a strong trust in the news. Uh, that trust has plummeted as the media have changed. And so uninterested, less interested citizens or citizens trying to become more interested and focused on politics don't know where to turn uh, and don't know what media or information to trust. And so I think it's dividing uh, our citizenry into uh, different groups and it could be contributing in some ways to the polarization that, that we're seeing. We're in a very uh, uncertain period as it relates to how uh, Americans uh, come to understand politics and um, uh, learn about the political system. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the big sort, I like to call it. You know, we've got media being divided into sort of conservative channels and liberal channels, and people have thought for a long time, um, some have thought anyway, that there was a liberal bias in the media, and Fox News has cropped up to sort of counter that. Now people watch what they think sort of reinforces their own view, and that may make people think it's all biased. I mean, what about the big sort, John? Yeah, that's that's one of the saddest developments in our industry is that uh, you readers are flocking to the media that confirms what they already think they know about things. That's not being an informed citizen. That's wallowing in your own prejudices, and whether it's left or right or whatever. So that, that, is, that is a big concern. And, and I think it's just so much harder now for a person who wants to be informed, who isn't an expert in the media, and why should they be? We all have lives. Uh, to find out where to go and, and how to do it, it's just being a, a, it's a lot more work. They've got to enter it with this level of skepticism to begin with and then sort through and tease through things and, and try to find media that they feel are more independent if they want to be informed. My fear is that many people want to be confirmed rather than informed. Uh, and this devotion uh, that I have, that my colleagues have, Naomi has, and the people I would train with to, to uh, objectivity, independence, uh, I see that being eroded all over the place in, in a very uh, obvious way on Fox or MSNBC, but in a less obvious way in the mainstream media. I think there is um, more bias, more interpretation, more editorializing that's sneaking into standard newspaper coverage and uh, I don't think the reader can tease that out as well as a professional can. What about that, Mike? I mean, the, it is the sort of common perception that, let's just say, the mainstream media has a liberal bias. Is that true? Oh, well, this is, this, I, I, I've come at this entirely as a political scientist and as someone who's interested in the measurement of these things, and I think it's incredibly hard to measure something like that and say with any definitiveness that the mainstream media has a liberal bias. You could you could measure it in lots of different ways, like the political affiliation of journalists, for example, which is probably not sufficient, um, or the way that they cover uh, politics, which is incredibly hard to get systematic uh, data on. And so those that have tried to measure it, political scientists who have spent a tremendous amount of time um, downloading, coding, and measuring the bias that may exist in the media have suggested that there might be a slight uh, liberal skew, but that has been um, uh, vigorously attacked from other scholars who don't like the methodology. And and we can't use anecdotes and examples, uh, cherry-picked examples, as uh, evidence of, of there being a, a, a bias in, in the media. And so my general conclusion on that is we just don't know and probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, and so it's, it's important for, and this is one of the things that I think is politicized, this whole idea. And so it, some will say it is and provide examples. Some will say it isn't and provide examples. And, and citizens will listen to which of those two versions they want to hear. And, uh, and the social science hasn't been clear in answering it. So, um, so the, you know, it's, it's an open question, but, but it's one of those things that um, uh, is incredibly hard to ever get an, a handle on. Do you want to comment, John? Yeah, I, I, I've read the same studies in probably, as Mike, as he has, as Mike has, and, and I, I've got the, what I recall is that a slight bias was found on, a, on some sort of uh, survey basis. And I, and I agree you shouldn't make uh, judgments on anecdotes, but I think 40 years in the business on my part, in many newspapers, and probably have worked with 1,500 to 2,000 journalists 
in my time, I will tell you that most of them are liberal. Uh, you really don't want to espouse around the coffee machine a conservative point of view in most of the newsrooms I've been into, and I've been in many, many newsrooms. Um, but, there, but a lot of people are fairly neutral. But my experience also is when they sit down to the keyboard, they know to leave that alone. Uh, where it pops up, it doesn't usually pop up in uh, words that they use. It usually pops up in story selection. Uh, there's a tendency in newsrooms to see successful people as some people who should be attacked and people who aren't successful as people who should be defended. We have this thing about, uh, uh, what is the phrase? Um, forget it now. But anyway, that, that's, that's, that is a, there is a bias in that sense. Uh, black hats and white hats, a lot of journalists are lazy. And they'd rather just see Republicans as one way and Democrats as another, rich people as one way and, and poor people as another way. So there, there is, on an operational basis, in all the newsrooms I've been in, uh, that tendency, but I wouldn't. I would say it really. It, it floats its way into um, how they write their stories. They try to be independent. I mean, some of us think, um, and I have heard other people say that as news reporting and content generating budgets have been cut, reporters rely less and less on actually investigating and rely more and more on just regurgitating the press releases or sort of he said, she said reporting without really analyzing whether any of it is true. Um, what, what about that, Mike? Does that happen? Well, I think so, and I think that um, this is what, what, you know, in my area of, of, of research, which is political advertising, you know, we've seen over the course of the last 30 years when we try to measure the coverage of this, this is just an example, the coverage of political advertising uh, in uh, in the media has skyrocketed. So there's more and more stories in um, competitive races uh, about the ads that the candidates uh, are airing. And one of the reasons why that's uh, fits this point is because covering political advertising is actually fairly uh, an easy thing to do. You don't really need to to walk the beat in order to to cover an ad. You just, it's online. You can see it on YouTube, and so then you just call uh, each each candidate, you know, each side up, uh, ask them what they think, and you write the story. And then citizens are interested in that kind of story because it's good, it's interesting story to read about, if especially if it's a negative ad. And so the coverage of things that are relatively easy to cover, as opposed to the events on the ground or um, uh, the issue positions of the candidates, you know, has has changed, and I think that reflects exactly what you say. Um, and I, I imagine that it's uh, uh, true in other in other ways as well, uh, in terms of how uh, journalists um, have come to rely more uh, on the easier stories. And you, you know, one of the reasons, one of the things that would have to change for that is some more investment from um, newspapers and televisions to, to actual journalists devoted to learning and living. The the, uh, the the issue areas that they cover to um, to be able to talk to the bureaucrats or talk to the politicians or uh, talk to corporate leaders or local leaders and be out there doing those things and there's less of that. Sometimes, John, it seems like the, that he said she said reporting leads to this idea that sort of both sides do it. Like if you do a he said she said, then you have to say. Um, this one's wrong, but that one's also wrong. This one's right, but that one's also right. And so where does um, an analysis of who's actually got their facts straight, and how is that different from the sort of editorializing that you say sometimes creeps in? Yeah, we got false equivalency. Um, it, it just takes more time. When, when um, we used to call a newspaper the 10-pound bag, 
which we had to fill up with 10 pounds of you-know-what. And now it's a 20-pound bag, and there are fewer people to fill it up. So you go with easier things. I'll give you some stats. In 1989, there were 57,000 newsroom employees. Now, in a newsroom, it's not just reporters. You may not know that. Editors, photographers, et cetera. In 2013, that was 37,000. There's 20,000 fewer people. Um, the newspaper in Orlando, rather an important newspaper right these days, and it's, it's, the editor and publisher is one of my very best friends, and I've been talking to him and communicating with him. They are down to one-third of the number of people in the newsroom they had at their peak. They had 350. Wow. They're just about at 100 right now. And they're doing a great job covering that story. But imagine the job they could do if they had their, their normal complement of, of reporters. So you have the reporters who will try anyhow, even though they're, they're being pushed harder. But you have to fill up that bag. And as Mike said, you go with the easy story. So crime is easy. Uh, he said, she said, politics stories are easy. It gets a lot of hits. But spending time to find out if the person who told you something, if that's backed up by the science or the facts, and then challenging that person, say, oh, by the way, there was a study by such and such that says that's wrong. Can you tell me why you're making that statement? That's, that's a sort of everyday investigative reporting that reporters, good reporters used to do. And now they're under such pressure to fill up that 10-pound bag that they don't do it. So the, I get I get I get Governor LePage to say something crazy. I get somebody in the Democratic Party to say Governor LePage is crazy. I got a story. Is that really journalism? No, it's not. And it doesn't really work in the public interest to help people figure out yeah. where where the facts are. No, it, it it doesn't. It just gets them. It just gets them the, the, the one inch surface. And you know sometimes that's all you can do today. But did you come back three or four days later and write a, a, a longer more complex piece about that, but you usually can't come back three or four days later because you're filling up the 10-pound bag with something else again. This is the reason why groups like well, Gars were founded, because we saw this gap between what journalism used to do and what it's unable to do now. How do you fill that gap? So there's about 100 or more nonprofit investigative news services across the country that have been created by people who used to be investigative reporters at newspapers who no longer can do it there. To, to fill this gap. And it, it's one solution, but it's not big enough and complete enough yet to be a total solution. I'm going to um, make a little announcement here, and we'll start accepting calls. But when we come back, Mike, I want to ask you to comment on that he said, she said reporting. And um, so hold the thought. We'll be right back. At this point, we would like to invite listeners to join the conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Michael Franz, Associate Professor at Bowdoin College and Co-Director of the Wesleyan Media Project, and John Christie, Co-Founder and Senior Editor for the Maine Center for Public Industry Reporting. Our topic is press or propaganda, corporate media, free press, and the future of democracy. It's time for you to join the conversation. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. We have only one listener line open today, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer offline so that others can also participate. And don't wait till the last minute to get your call in. Call early. That number again is 866 866- 625-9378 or 469-0500. So back to you, Mike. What about the he said, she said reporting and the opportunity or lack thereof of analysis uh, on these political sides? 
Yeah, well, I, I, the, the thing that, that stands out for me on this is you might call that, uh, in a sense, sort of lazy objectivity, uh, because uh, if I can say um, some folks say this and some folks say that, then I'm being balanced. But in reality, uh, objective reporting should reflect uh, the, the facts. And so if the economy is uh, getting better, then the reporting should reflect the growth in the economy and not simply report those who say it is getting better and those who doubt the statistics. Uh, the Maybe the most famous example is, um, or one very famous, more recent example is whether vaccines cause autism. Uh, a he said, she said story would say some say yes, some say no. Uh, the overwhelming evidence is that the answer to that question is no. And so the reporting should probably reflect the, um, the evidence uh, leverage to that question. And so that takes uh, more time and more effort and does require the reporter uh, to uh, to weigh all of the evidence, to know what the evidence says, uh, instead of simply just finding some that say this and some that say that, and then calling that fair and balanced, exactly. so to speak. Exactly, right. We have a caller on the line, Kathy from Waldo. You're on the air. Go ahead with your question. Um, good morning. Good morning. Um, yes, I, I feel that the the fact that our media is largely privately owned um, and the profit motive is operating very heavily, <clears throat> I'm very aware for a long time, and I've been, I call a news junkie forever and ever, although the junkie is far too, uh, not a nice term for a person who really cares about what is going um, I'd like to give uh, PBS uh, television news <clears throat> as an example, especially the news hour. I have seen its decline since the days of Jim Lehrer and, um, you know, they would get analysis from more of a variety of uh, Sources. Now they stick to the Enterprise Institute and uh, <clears throat> the other one, whatever that is. Thank, um, thanks, Kathy. Let, let's ask Michael to comment well, on that. Let, oh, let go me ahead. just continue. And they use the military, uh, retired military and so on, and very um, mainstream for any opinion piece that they have. And um, I've noticed that more and more commercials are on what's called PBS, public broadcasting. And um, then we have these private uh, entities whose names are put across the, 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 the uh, screen, who donate, who give. Uh, and then viewers like you, we come last. I think we get and, where you're going with this, Kathy, yeah. that wh whether the corporate underwriting of the news at PBS has had an influence over the selection yes. of their speakers. And I'd like the to selection. hear, yeah, I'd like to hear Mike comment on that. Go ahead, Mike. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, what I would call that, uh, what, what, what stands out to me on that is a good empirical question. Um, I haven't seen any studies that have uh, have examined that, but it's it seems 
like a good empirical question that should be investigated, or at least you know someone should should look into. I I don't want to uh, confirm or deny that, so to speak, because um, uh, I haven't uh, I haven't looked at the trend line over time. But it it certainly is a concern that we should have uh, about the influence of um, you know the, the influence it could have on the media coverage. But it remains a remains a question for me. What do you say, John? Uh, I, I don't. I, I've seen what she's talking about. I, I mean, it, you'd have to you'd have to go back and look at a lot of stuff in the past to see if that's the case. Um, it sounds a little bit too suspicious to me. I, I I tend my my gut instinct would tell me that I doubt that's happening. And and all all media is privately owned. There's no publicly owned media. Even even PBS is a private nonprofit organization. So at this point, uh, there is no such thing as publicly owned media unless you count the press releases. Put out by the government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have another caller on the line, David from Brooklyn. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I, thanks for the show and the chance to call in. I was thinking about the he said, she said thing, and uh, especially the example of uh, vaccines causing autism, which was used uh, as an argument in favor of dispensing with the he said, she said. Uh, routine and going instead to the uh, studies show that. And to me, I, that, that brought up a big trouble flag because uh, I don't have any more faith in the studies than I do in the capacity of a reporter to decide for me what's true and what's not true. Uh, uh, the studies are very limited frequently and uh, uh, are uh, intended to come to certain conclusions and and don't take into consideration a lot of very important variables which you can contest whether they are important or not. Uh, so uh, when a study comes up and says, for example, uh, there's no problem with smart meters or there's no problem with cell phones or... Uh, that we, we have a safe level of uh, lead in the water or, or, uh, or in the ground or we ha- our uh, vaccines do not cause autism. You know, these studies are a bunch of baloney to me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to, you know, like uh, 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 praise my reporter for, uh, uh, for uh, uh, gobbling up the uh, party line that's put out in these studies, uh, well, I'm not going to praise him. Uh, you know, I need to hear more like some say and others say than, uh, you know, uh, I need to be able to make up my own mind. I, I don't think it's really the job of the reporter to make up uh, their mind for Th- us. Yeah, th- thanks, David. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of skepticism out there and others on, you know, the other side of this site, the reporting on climate change human caused or not human caused as a way in which corporate media have or have not distorted the science but people are so skeptical of what they read they have trouble believing um the reporting what about that john well the first thing to do is is to quote the famous phrase that that journalism is history written on the run okay so it's not going to be right it's not going to have everything even a journalist who tries to do the very best and finds the people who know about the study at the university or whatever, and the university someplace else has something else to say, in the end, you're going to have to make up your own mind. A reporter should not be telling you what to say. That's not what we're suggesting. We're just suggesting that 
when the preponderance of scientific evidence or, 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 or the best thought out people know something, then you should give them more of the story than those who are not of that level. We're, we're, we're journalists, we're generalists, we, uh, we can't resolve all of these problems. We can do our very best in reporting them, but to think that uh, any news story is going to be the definitive thing you can trust it completely, there'll never be anything else that will change your mind about it, that ain't journalism. Yep. We have another caller on the line, Peter from Brooklyn. Go ahead. Hi there. Hi. Um, some of us uh, have just stopped having televisions in our home. Uh, it's a waste of time. We can't stand the advertising. Uh, we can pick up almost everything we need on the Internet if we know to look for it. Um, but uh, are we missing something if we don't, uh, you know, if we read it all in print? And I'm, I'm harking back to Marshall McLuhan and hot media and uh, uh, cold media uh, in, the, in the Understanding Media book that he wrote several decades ago. I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'll take the answer offline. Thanks, Thanks. Peter. What about that, Mike? I don't think you're missing anything except for uh, reruns of uh, 90s sitcoms or something. So um, I, I think, uh, the, you know, um, uh, television news coverage, there have been some studies that have looked into uh, uh, the quality of news coverage uh, on television and in particular local television uh, stations and have generally concluded that it's of the lowest uh, lowest quality, uh, not to disparage the, the good people at the at, – at, on, on, who cover local politics on TV, but the demands of covering um, uh, what viewers are interested in on local television, namely the weather and sports, has uh, have fundamentally undermined the way in which it covers uh, politics and current events. And so um, the gold standard here, I believe, has always been uh, print, and there's a declining number of people that read print sources, uh, subscriptions and, and readership is way down, and some of that can be found online, but we are circling back now to this uh, change that we discussed before about uh, uh, content curation as opposed to generation. Uh, and so uh, I don't think that anything is lost by not watching television. I think a lot is lost by not reading newspapers. Let me say something about that. I think you are missing something, and I think you should be watching television. Because if you don't watch television, you don't know how the country is reacting. You don't know what they're being told. You're isolating yourself from the general population of what a lot of things are happening because of what's on television. So you're not missing a lot of information, but you're not going to be part of what's going on in this country if you isolate yourself from television. We have another caller on the line, Fred, Tenants Harbor. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for the program. Uh, with regard to a free press, um, I, I'm, I don't go on the Internet, but I, uh, I know people do. And uh, there's the question, one question is, is whether the Internet is or was a really free and open well, it's it's anyway it's it's partially succumbed to corporate pressure, I think. Um, now, with regard to getting the news out, um, about a variation on a mic check, i.e., the town crier, um, and lots of other uh, pamphleteering. Um, you know, that may be something in the future that gets the news out. And just one more third point, with regard to Mr. Trump. I think he's a poster boy for clean elections, uh, that uh, a person should not be able to bring their bazillions into an election just like uh, just like groups of people. So thanks for the program. I'll listen off the air. Thanks for your comment, Fred. Mike, I think that question sort of gets at the proliferation of media channels, and the Internet is really only one 
but um, mainstream media is not where it's happening. There's so many other sources. What about the town crier pamphleteering as it's being pervade in the digital age? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I'm not totally sure I understand exactly the direction of the question, but, I mean, one, one example of that that uh, has its own challenges but potentially its own um, its own advantages is something like social media like Twitter. Uh, you know, people can learn a ton about what's going on at the local level. Obviously, the information displayed on, on Twitter comes from, from, from citizens and media sources uh, and, and may, in fact, uh, and do, in fact, take their own skew based on how people interpret the events on the ground. But, um, but, uh, but people can learn what's happening. You hear, you know, fire engine running by your your house at uh, two in the morning you know it's possible somebody uh, knows what's going on and, and puts that on Twitter so uh, people can learn a lot about the sort of local level and national level by by through that forum I uh, don't necessarily advocate that as your as your main concern consumer base of news but um but it does allow citizens to directly engage with uh, with current events and with the process and and it remains to be seen you know the long-term effects of that but uh can serve some use We're, i want to talk a little bit more about social media and proliferation of channels when we come back but uh just a short break you're tuned to the democracy forum on weru this is ann luther of the league of women voters of maine our guests this morning are Michael Franz, Associate Professor at Bowdoin College and Co-Director of the Wesleyan Media Project, and John Christie, Co-Founder and Senior Editor for the Maine Center of Public Interest Reporting. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation right now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. Uh, we we'll welcome your call. We have only one line open, so if you get a busy signal, keep trying. Um, and take your question, if you wouldn't mind, off the air so more people can join. So, John, talk about prol proliferation of media. Um, we Twitter, but, I mean, Politico, Vox, I mean, some of these channels, which are pretty important now, weren't around at all, uh, even a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, on the one end, you, you could learn about that fire truck going by your house by a guy tweeting. The guy could be tweeting out of his imagination just as well as a fire truck going by his house. So, um the difference in a lot of it is there used to be editors who checked things before they went out. Even at newspapers now, reporters are tweeting without any editor looking at it. They, they, they could be making it up. It's not checked out. It's, um, it's, a, it's a terrible trend in my mind because you're getting information from a news source you think is like regular news, and really it's not being vetted at all. Um, yeah, I think some of these other ones, though, uh, are pretty good, like Politico. Uh, they're started often by people from the mainstream media. Uh, they have some of the standards of the mainstream media as, as an awful big appetite for politics. It's kind of amazing. On the one hand, you know, we have uh, newspaper circulation is down 7% in the last few years, yet readership of this type of topic is, is, is up and it's intense. I think because we're polarized, we're just more interested in it like it's a baseball game or a boxing match. Who is our side winning or losing? And who's take, making the most outrageous comments right now? So there's a big appetite for it. Some of it, some of it's good. A lot of it is, is partisan. A lot of it is partisan, um, posing to be not partisan. So I think it's it's making it very hard for citizens who enters the the arena of news and politics, hoping to be independent and find out what's actually happening. Uh, it's quite a morass. I don't know how they do without some uh, some help from someone. We have another caller on the line, Mark, from Ellsworth. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. Great show. 
Thanks. Uh, I'm just curious. Uh, McChesney and his rich media poor democracy 20 years ago talked about these issues exactly. Plus, that 50% of uh, sponsorship for PBS stations comes from oil companies. Uh, do you feel this has been exacerbated by uh, uh, the, the now Fox Media and other independent news uh, and uh, Facebook? Thank you. Uh, do you, I don't know if you want to comment on that, Mike. I can um, ask a follow-up question, but go ahead and comment first. Well, let's let's see the follow-up question too, because there's a lot potentially that we could go, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on how to spin that. Well, I mean, you know, we had a, a question here about um, about corporate ownership and the corporate-driven agenda of the news, um, but we also have these questions about um, why. Does it seem like the conservative biased outlets like Fox are so successful, and where the liberally biased—I mean, the overtly ones like MSNBC—seem sort of feckless? I mean, why is that? Oh well, you know, th- this is um, a complicated question. I mean, one one particular answer could be, and I think uh, there's something to this, is that the um, the the I don't want to draw too much into this notion of, of anger, but the sort of energy and reaction of conservatives to the perception that the media is biased and has been biased for many years, I think, drives the passion for something like Fox News. Um, if you watch Fox News, you see it sort of reinforces itself and congratulates itself for covering things that they um, uh, tell its viewers are not being covered or haven't been covered well or you'll see nowhere else. And and they, they almost seem um, uh, so happy with with the way that they cover politics because they're offering viewers something that that, that citizens apparently do, they say don't get and so um, what I think that means is that the reaction and anger of those uh, on the conservative side of the spectrum to this narrative of the media has found a, a lot of enthusiasts and on the left um, uh, you know it's just not necessarily there now some might see that as evidence well of a liberal bias well there's plenty of liberal skewed news out there for people and so people aren't angry about not getting it but um, but I just think that there's a there's a strong strong energy coming from the from conservatives about the status quo uh, that uh, that drives enthusiasm for this kind of news outlet. Um, plus, you've seen stories uh, on a regular basis to, to speak to the caller's point about Facebook uh, that suggests that you know some of the these um, um, non-news social media places like Facebook, which you know is not generated and started as a news organization, but there have been stories, uh, uh, allegations in the last month about Facebook's uh, behind-the-scenes. Um, uh, fixing and altering its its um, uh, trending stories to uh, to disadvantage uh, conservative perspectives, whether that's true or not, and how it's uh, how it's played out is a, an open question. But it drives people nuts when they mm-hmm. think that there's this kind of thing happening. Yeah, we have another caller on the line, Ian from Thomaston. Thanks for calling. Hey, how's it going? Uh, very well. Go ahead. Oh, cool. Well. It sounds like I'm hearing a lot of waxing nostalgic to um, the old mainstream media, maybe the big three sort of controlling or, you know, as if it was unbiased. But I feel like growing up in the 80s that they were far from unbiased. Um, And I I actually think it's encouraging that there's more more sources of media. Like, you know, something like Glenn Greenwald's The Intercept is really great. 
um, <clears throat> source of news now, and uh, it wouldn't have been possible without the internet and all the stuff going on now. So, I think it's it's better now than it was actually. But that's just my opinion. Well, thanks, Ian. Um, John, comment on the diversity. Yeah. Go a ahead. lot, a, a, a lot of it is better, but a lot of it is worse too. Uh, it, and we, people tend to think the media is the big three. I guess he means the networks. But I, I think back of that, that period as, as all the newspapers. There were seventeen hundred newspapers then, and there are only thirteen hundred newspapers now, and they were better staffed. So uh, we don't only get our news from one network on television. Uh, people get their news from their newspapers, their local newspapers, their local television stations. And I think as, 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 a, as a totality, things were better then. But you can make some exceptions now, and I, I think that some of the exceptions uh, that he mentioned uh, are pretty good. Some of them are really driven by ideology, uh, and I don't think that's – I think if, if that's your ideology, then you see some news driven by the ideology, you think news is better but I think you need to think about whether it's 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 better news or better ideology. Mm-hmm. We have another caller, Yo from Tremont. Go ahead. Good morning. Morning. Isn't remains to be seen just as much a cheap shot as he said, she said? It is disingenuous to say people should stay in touch via corporate media. It is a swamp of lies, propaganda, and alien orders. Everybody should disconnect from TV. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks, Yo. Mike, do you have a comment on that? Well, I I think that uh, the most important thing for citizens is diversifying their media media acquisition. So I think that... um, uh, uh, that people should should read a lot. Uh, I say this as someone who who loves politics, and so I, of course, uh, bring bring that bias to it. But I think people should read a lot, should question a lot, should ask uh, ask for more information and transparency amongst public officials, and should be active citizens. And so that means that they should um, question the sources of news and evidence. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, you also also have to act as a citizen and vote and make decisions and figure out what you believe and so you do have to sort of move uh, on what uh, on, on the big questions of the day but I think that uh, the best way to do that is to uh, diversify your sources of news and and to be someone who is open to um, a variety of perspectives and uh, and that uh, that will make you a, a much better citizen and will make you someone who can uh, engage and question like these callers uh, are doing today they're asking uh, all of us to engage and to question the sources of media and and to um, uh, and to to be skeptical and I think that that's the the beginning of good citizenship. We're coming into the last few minutes of the show, so I want to um, give you each a chance to make some last big points before we run into the close. Um, John, what do you think the takeaways are? It's going to be hard to be an informed citizen. It's out there. You need to find it. And then I think when you find it, you need to support it by whether way you support it with a donation to that organization or by simply buying that newspaper or that or listening to that station. And I think and, – and secondly, to distrust your biases. Uh, I remember being in a Rotary Club when I was an editor in Massachusetts in the 1970s, and some guy got up and said – I don't like newspapers. I don't, I, don't, I don't trust everything I read. And I said, thank you. Do not trust everything you read. I agree with that. 
You know, if you read The Nation, make sure you read uh, a conservative magazine, too. If you're always reading The New York Times, you should pick up The Wall Street Journal. And, and tr- try to remember your job as a citizen is to stay informed and to doubt your own prejudices. And then, then you can come to some sort of a reasonable conclusion as a citizen. It's just hard work. Admit it's hard work, and you have to do it. Mike, does that put people who have the time, the energy, the intellectual capacity, the education to be critical thinkers and seekers out of independent journalism at an advantage in terms of their citizenship over people who don't? Yes, well, it, it, it does, and it always it always has been the case that um, that uh, uh, people with the with the interest and with some background in this area are advantaged. Um, one of the things that I find really fascinating about the olden days, you know, the big three media d- days when uh, you had television and three stations, uh, and the origin of television was that. Uh, this was before my time. Was that was that people watched television and turn on the TV because it was this novel, amazing thing, and they watched whatever was on, and and oftentimes that meant that in the background the news was on every night, and so Walter Cronkite was on, and so people who had no interest in politics turn on this box because they'd never had it before in their house, and they they heard and experienced the news, and they were informed to some extent, and so the uninformed or the uninterested were you know inadvertently exposed to the politics of the day. And as we are able to sort ourselves uh, more in this current media environment, it uh, polarizes us and divides us into those that are interested and those that aren't. Uh, On the other hand, and this is another program entirely, uh, the development of social media allows citizens, perhaps by scrolling through their Facebook feed, to see some stories that uh, friends and acquaintances post. And so there is some exposure to the news that's happening, but it's harder for those citizens to know which information to trust. And so my final point on that is that one of the things I think is a big challenge for us today is that we are in a trust spiral in our institutions. The trust in government, the trust in media, the trust in science, as one caller noted, is at all-time all time lows. And this trust spiral is contributing to a big problem we have today. And I don't know what to do about it, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's something that we need to really, really be concerned about. We have a, you know, John has alluded a couple times to the role of curation in an editorial role in um, bringing up or enforcing or adhering to standards and what's put out there. And I think you're coming to that a little bit too, Mike, with your trust spiral comment. I mean, how do we find appropriate curation in this vastly diversified news world? Yes, it's a good question, and it's there, and it's happening, and and people are, you know, there, you know, not to, not to, to draw this too starkly, but there are tons of people that still care a ton about uh, doing the good work of the press. Oops, and, Mike, I hear the I hear the theme music coming on. All right, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut you off because we are out of time. That's a good end. Thank you to our guest this morning, Michael Franz, associate professor at Bowdoin College and co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project, and John Christie, co-founder and senior editor at the Maine Center for public interest reporting. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, who was our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org. Feel free to make a suggestion through the website or give us a call at 622-0256 if you have a topic for a future show. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month.